0: Control Structure, episode 43, Popular Opinion, for September 11th, 2013, with host Andrew Bailey and guest Stephen Orbis. And now, every bug is critical. So, uh, yeah, Chris decided that he'd, uh, go on vacation, so, uh, uh, letting him was, uh, one of the best choices I've ever made in my life. Um... So I hope he's, uh, you know, enjoying himself forever because, uh, you know, apparently uh, we are the only ones who can handle each other's crap. Uh, that was uh, immediately apparent uh, during college. So uh, I guess uh, I went ahead and uh, got us uh, got a guest uh, for this episode, uh, Stephen. Hi, Stephen. Hi. I guess I'll ask uh, some interview questions later grabbed him uh, from church of all places but it's yep. uh um let's see are you afraid of risk
1: am i afraid of risk hmm good question depends can i get hurt in the risk
0: i guess i'm not really afraid of risk you know like i've never really won the game um even though i played it like six times it's a good game as long as it doesn't get drawn out and you know they just go on forever and ever yep. that's when you can be afraid of that uh, the best I've got is, uh, draw, and, uh, that was, like, I think it was like on the Lord of the Rings version, but, uh, anyway, we're talking about risk of things going totally bad. Um, so it seems like we've conquered most of the obvious easy things that, uh, would hurt us, like disease and stuff, and, uh, now the hard ones really stand out, and we're trying to go after those, too, but at what cost? So uh, Bruce Schreiner uh, enumerates some reasons here and some examples. Uh, For instance, the police have turned into a paramilitary organization with uh, SWAT teams literally everywhere going out literally every day. Uh, Zero tolerance uh, policies in schools. And uh, then there's the whole thing on terrorism. And uh, you know, there's you know plenty of uh, you know other examples. Uh, some of this fear results from imperfect risk perception. We're bad at accurately assessing risk and tend to exaggerate spectacular, strange, and rare events and downplay ordinary, familiar, and common ones. Uh, for instance, you are more likely to die in a train wreck than you are in a terrorist attack. Uh, a pretty good one. <laughs> And uh, you're more likely to drown in your bathtub than, uh, or get killed uh, by a drunk driver, than you are from a terrorist attack. Uh, but no one's really going after those problems.
1: Yeah, they seem like at the airports and stuff. They're so big on the making sure you're not a terrorist and stuff. And. No one's ever checked my bathtub out to see if it's
0: safe. (laughs) (laughs) So some of this fear stems from the fact that we put people in charge of just one aspect of the equation. No one wants to be the senior officer who doesn't approve the SWAT team for the one subpoena delivery that resulted in an officer getting shot. No one wants to be the school principal who didn't discipline no matter how benign the infraction of the one student who became a shooter. No one wants to be the president who rolled back a ta- counterterrorism measure just in time to have a plot go through. Yeah, we need to spread this uh, stuff around a little bit.
1: There's to some extent, too, though, with the risk, people like being able to fix something. It's hard to fix drowning in the bathtub, but if they can feel like they're fixing something by setting up the SWAT team, people like to have that control over the risk.
0: So. You know, with, uh, especially with the NSA and stuff, uh, like with surveillance, apparently psychology has uncovered numerous effects of surveillance. You know, like behavior of people changes when they know that they're being watched. Um, apparently mental health and performance goes down, uh, promotes distrust between the public and the government, and uh, it, surveillance breeds conformity, uh, which is, you know, very bad. Uh, it, uh, surveillance can even undermine the influence of authority, and uh, pave the way to a pedestrian future. So, like with all the surveillance going on, soon there will be nothing interesting to watch, and like nothing, you know, nothing innovative will happen.
1: That was that was reminding me of uh, when you say about the u- uniformity. It uh, was reminding me of Equilibrium, the movie. Have you seen that?
0: No, I don't watch TV.
1: Okay, in, in the movie, it's like they take drugs to suppress their emotions and it's like the whole society is very uniform and you can tell the government's very watching everyone making sure they're taking the drugs and stuff it, it reminded me it's very much the same the, everyone's uniform they're all the same it fits in very
0: well hmm. so uh have you uh you know looked at the news and uh like saw like a really dumb business move
1: really dumb business move
0: Like, uh, stuff that isn't exactly pro-consumer. Like, a lot of this has to do with the idea of maximizing shareholder value. In that, uh, like, under this doctrine that companies solely exist to make their owners money. Uh, Steve Denning has, uh, wrote an article saying that this is the dumbest idea in the world. Um, you know, pretty much going up against, uh, uh, let's see, I get, he gave a rather, uh, let's see... Rather interesting analogy here. Let's see. Imagine an NFL coach um, holding a press conference on a Wednesday to announce that he predicts a win by nine points on Sunday, and that better should recognize that the current spread of six points is too low. Uh, picture the team's quarterback standing up in the post-game press conference and apologizing for having only won by three points instead <laughs> of the nine Uh, While it's laughable to imagine coaches and quarterbacks doing so, CEOs are expected to do both of these things.
1: That is very true, the way the business world is. That's a very good analogy.
0: So, and uh, to follow up on this, uh, apparently this tweet reveals the non-importance of employees. uh, That they are costs. Full stop. They don't have a stake. They hold nothing. They trade their labor for money. Which, you know, isn't exactly true, you know, um, back in the day, you know, like, back in the 60s and 70s, people had, like, lifelong careers. Uh, Employees actually meant, you know, a lot more to businesses. And, you know, uh, the idea of, like, having a high employee turnover just didn't exist back then. But apparently now that employees are treated more like garbage these days, you know, that's an actual problem for some people.
1: That's something that when I when I was younger, like I talked to some older people and stuff, and they talk like, oh, yeah, I worked at this steel company for like 60 years or whatever. And then you kind of get in the software industry, and it's like, oh, well, I've worked this job for three years, this job for four years, and this is like no one stays at the same job for a very long length of time.
0: So, And at the uh, current job I'm at, you know, it looks like I'm going to stay there until the well runs dry. And uh, judging by the list of bugs I have to fix, that's not going to happen anytime <laughs> soon. So, uh, let's see. There, are, uh, let's see. In the upcoming uh, phase or something for the client we just launched, um, it looks like someone bled all over my bug list because everything's all red and blocker and critical and stuff. For the <laughs> next release.
1: No, that's the thing about bugs, is every bug is critical.
0: So It's always that way. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Um but at least, you know, there's a sensible shield in between me and, you know, the people who are actually paying for it.
1: That is is a good thing about being within a software company is the shields. So, I-
0: so, yeah, because I'm an engineer, I'm not exactly a project manager or something. So, hey, uh, maybe you'd like to join in on the moaning about finances on this podcast. Uh, so, Morgan Chase, uh, which, if you didn't know, is a huge bank, uh, they are about to leave the student loan business. And this is prompting serious questions as to whether or not the student loan bubble will imminently pop.
1: yes. I I saw the article for that, and it it they were saying about how their choice is pretty much was to raise the interest rates to make it profitable, but then the students they were assuming wouldn't pay off the loans, and if they were too much for the interest rates,
0: yeah. And, yeah, having having more interest on top of the interest that you can't already pay is a bad idea.
1: <laughs> exactly.
0: So. And, uh, you know, again, reading back in the good old days that, uh, you know, you could actually pay your way through college. Um, That's because the taxpayers actually picked up more of the bill back then for tuition and everything. It's not it's it's not exactly about, you know, no one gets paid well these days or even have and that no one has a job these days. It's because, you know, you know, the government is not paying as much for college these days.
1: I've heard the opposite argument too, that people were say, "Oh, because the government's paying colleges have increased the tuition." So I don't know what's true there. Right. So, so what one? I I don't know if you have thoughts on this. One thing I thought about when I read this is I wondered how, with they said, if you you know a year or two back they said they, the government took over all the student loans. I'm not really sure how that fits in with Chase since they're a private bank. If that has any impact on these decisions here as well.
0: Yeah, um, like I haven't really looked into, like, Stafford loans and, like, the politi- the political stuff behind that. So, but, uh, yeah, um, let's see. And I am on track to completely pay off all of my student loans by the end of the year. So, and I'll keep everyone informed on the progress of that.
1: So, I, th- I thought that you went to a school and you had a special deal... Because they moved partway through that you were gonna go for free,
0: um mostly free um, in the fact that I did not pay tuition for most of it, okay, so uh, which you know sort of made me sad that that hundred thousand dollar student loan bill wasn't going to be <laughs> there
1: yeah you, you missed paying that off for the rest of your life, like you're so disappointed you have all this extra money now, and
0: yeah, know what you it, it. it ended up being about thirty thousand or so.
1: It's not too bad.
0: Which just over five thousand is left, so very nice. And then after I pay that off, I'll finish paying God off. So there you go, and uh, and now for the Kickstarter of the week, and uh, I've chosen uh, the uh, Chopin or yeah Chopin project, uh, set Chopin free. So apparently. Uh, There's, like, no archive anywhere of uh, free material of, like, his entire work. Uh, Like, all of his works that he did. Apparently that's not available for free anywhere. So this Kickstarter is going to change that. And, uh, like, they're going to be recording high-quality, you know, like, recordings of all these. And uh, they're going to be releasing them on the internet for free.
1: That's an interesting project. It's kind of like a, I was thinking of the, the Gutenberg project and how they they have all these books and they're releasing them on the internet and like people will read the books. Oh no, that's LibriVox where they people read the audio books and like take turns reading them. It's like, that's a good idea.
0: Yeah. So, um, yeah, I'll be uh, I'll be don't uh, well donating funding this uh, whatever the Kickstarter terminology is.
1: I haven't been on the Kickstarter before. I'm, I'm looking here, it says it's 39 days to go. Is that, do they like set a goal and then they say like we do it within 39 days and if we don't make the goal they cancel it or how does that work?
0: Uh, sort of. So, let's see. Looks like this will go for about a month and a half uh, from the uh, 5th to October 20th, uh, 45 days. So, like, what Kickstarter is is that they will set a goal, in this case, $75,000, and if they don't reach it, then everyone gets their money back. Ah, uh, okay. And if they hit it, that's good. If they go over, then, uh, uh, like, a lot of projects will do s- things called stretch goals. So, like, we'll do this, and we'll also add in this and this if we reach this amount.
1: Okay, then so that covers them when it goes over. Then they already have a plan for this extra money, and so. Yeah.
0: But uh, recently, that's been you know sort of looked at as something bad in that you know like the project uh, creators like plan out okay, you know we can do uh, this much in this amount of time, and we can send out everything on this date but then if you have, like, all these stretch goals, that it tends to stretch out the delivery date on all of these. uh uh-huh. So, I mean, I'm sort of, you know, back and forth on stretch goals, so. And uh, now, for the uh, first time in a long time, uh, this will be a control structure interview. <laughs> Hi, Steven. Don't mean to put you on the uh, spot or anything. But uh, what inspires you?
1: That's a good question. Uh, Honestly, like, inspires me. Just, I like good code. I like reading good code. I'll read, uh, (laughs) Uh, like, I just enjoy reading code through code on, like, at work and stuff. Sometimes I'll be reading through a section of code. And it's always interesting to see the ideas that other people have done things. Look, for instance, I've learned a lot of things. uh In C sharp, we have a a way of doing nullable things. Like if it's null, then you do like question question mark, and then you give it a value for when it's null. Right. And I never knew that. And by reading through code, I was able to discover features like that. So that that that's I don't know a way of ideas for me is I I read through code. And of course working on bugs you get a chance to read through a lot of code like that. So <laughs> it's always interesting to go through stuff and and learn things like that.
0: So uh, like you haven't really worked on any kind of new project?
1: I do work on new projects, uh some. Like this year at the beginning of the year, we were working on a enterprise service that plugged in with uh other of our clients. And that was that was pretty much all in news. So that was that was interesting, too, because you go in and it's, like, there's these big flow charts and they're saying that this would do this and this would do that. And then you go to the code and there's just, like, a shell of the projects and it's, like, okay, so <laughs> how
0: does it actually work? Yeah, like, there's, uh, like, stubs everywhere, like... Uh-huh,
1: exactly. He debug through and it, it hits the function call and it returns string.empty and It's, like, oh, okay, <laughs> that part's not done yet.
0: <laughs> okay. So, uh, what got you started with computers and technology? I got started
1: from my grandfather. Uh, we'd go visit him, and he always had his computer down in his basement there. And he would put up, like, video games for the kids and stuff that would come, and he'd show us the new screensaver or something that he had. So, that, that's kind of what got me going into the computers. And then, like, I, I just always liked them. The whole idea of them doing stuff for me is very appealing. It's like, I can tell them to do something once, and then they can do it for me forever. So I guess that's what yeah, offloading tasks exactly.
0: Yeah. So, uh, what was your first gigantic technical accomplishment?
1: I would say my first one was uh, the summer, let me think. My third summer out of while I was in college, there I was trying to get a job, like an internship at a place, uh, but I wasn't able to. So I ended up that summer, I was wanted to learn C-sharp, and I wanted to get experience. So I decided to write a program that would read in the Bible in an XML format. And it went through and it made an index of each verse, and it kept track of where that verse was at and things. And so then on the program, you could select the verses, you know, by book, then chapter and make a listing of them. But also, too, I did like a search bar. So it's like, you start typing and then it would suggest words to you. It's like, Oh, you have the, these words that you can type in next. And so that, that was, that was for me a really big achievement because I got to work with massive amount of data because you have the whole Bible, like that many words. I learned a lot about performance and that was actually a good back when I was doing job interviews and I was trying to find my job. That was a really good thing to talk about because I, I had a big project that I had actually done. So that was that was my first technical achievement.
0: Yeah, and, uh, you know, it's sort of amazing that, you know, like the Bible is like a really thick book. Uh-huh. And, you know, it's like, oh, man, that's like really a lot of text. But in reality, it's only about four megabytes or so. <laughs>
1: yeah. In, in, in the computer terms, it's not that much when you put
0: it into the text. That yeah, is it's, it's only like four megabytes. So, mm-hmm. you know... Like, right now, I can download that in less than a second. Yes, you do have
1: the internet that would be that fast It's (laughs) there.
0: Yes. So, and uh, let's see, that sort of reminds me of, like, uh, like one of my side projects that I sort of started working on and stopped was a uh, prayer tracker. And, like, one of the things in there was, you know, essentially, you know, like the Bible. You know, you could go through, you know, by book and chapter and whatever. So, like, it was more of an exercise in HTML and CSS. But, uh, unfortunately, I didn't really build the whole thing out. So.
1: I have a lot of those projects that I I started building this really great idea, and then I just quite haven't finished yet. Someday I will. Yeah. A Checkers game and a few other ones like that.
0: <laughs> yeah, and, uh, let's see, there was, uh, like a web page that had a whole bunch of, uh, less like link animation hover effects that you know I was like man that would be really good for that so so anyway uh what the, what are the tools that you use now and how have they changed
1: currently i do which a i lot can of... probably
0: guess what they are but do say okay
1: <laughs> currently i work with uh, c sharp so i use visual studio unfortunately we don't work in linux and use mono develop as much fun as that could be I, uh, I use the standard features of TFS, which, I don't know if I like TFS right now. But anyways, I also, for fun, when I program for fun, I often, I get into, uh, Linux, and if I'm doing maybe websites right now, I'm into Ruby, on Rails a lot. So I use that, and I'm a very big fan of Git. I use GitHub a whole bunch. Uh as far as how they've changed, um... Uh, I guess forget a good example is I'm back when I was in college. I did this. I had a program I was writing and I was kind of using my homemade version control. Of you copy the folder and rename it like that. Yeah. <laughs> so That was before I knew about source control.
0: Um, I think of other ways that they've changed. Uh, like what did you start out using but now you don't use that anymore because it sucks or something?
1: <laughs> well... And my company, when I first started, we were using Visual Studio th- 2005. And then finally, <laughs> we went to 2010. <laughs> the 2013's out now. But anyways. Right. So that that was a pretty big upgrade. There's a lot of nice features in that. Uh, works better, too, it seems. There's still room for improvement, definitely. Uh, I started out using... uh, Way back when, when I was a kid, I had programmed the BASIC for a while. I used Liber- Li- Liberty BASIC as well. So I guess you could say that's what I started off with. Oh, I started off with Java. That was my first college programming language. Then I upgraded to the other languages. You upgraded <laughs> to basic from Java? No, no, no. <laughs> I, I went from basic to, to Liberty Basic. Then I went to Java. Okay. That, and, that's... Then, and then I kind of got into C Sharp. Then I've, now I've moved into the Ruby on Rails and stuff as well. That, so. that
0: sounds more sensible.
1: Yes, yeah, I didn't go from Java to basic. <laughs> that was back when I didn't have a clue of how anything worked. I t- I had an old Atari gaming system and uh I I found this book from the library It had these programs in it written in basic. And it w- they were like stupid programs like uh I don't know. one was an age guesser. So would you type in it ask you your age was a higher or lower it'd guess and you tell it higher or lower and it it you know take it down to figured out your age. Uh and then, oh, there was uh, another game called Gunner. which was like, until you, you, there's a target 100 meters out. What's the angle? You type in the angle and how much powder you want to use. You type it in and then you shoot and say, the guy would come back and say, sir, you know, you hit the target and 30 yards off and whatever. And, it, it, and you do, keep doing that till you hit the target. So anyways, that had all those programs in the book. And I would sit there on the old Atari gaming system and type in them line by line copying from the book, that, which was fun. The trouble was it had no memory, so it's like at the <laughs> yeah. end of the night when you were done with it, you'd have to unplug it, and it's like,
0: gone. oh,
1: <laughs> so it's like hours of typing. But I think I think that's where I started learning how to type, so maybe it was beneficial to me. I don't know.
0: <laughs> yeah, so that that sort of reminds me back. Uh, see, I think it was like one of my very first 4H projects that uh, you know was like introduction to computers and like. Uh, I believe it had a lot of BASIC uh, programs in it. But unfortunately, Windows 95 didn't really do that. So <laughs> that sort of, uh, you, know, you know, hampered my progression yeah. a little bit. But, I,
1: I, I discovered years too later that you could program in DOS with BASIC. There's a way you can get in there and do that. But I was like, why didn't I know that when I was a kid? I needed that so bad.
0: Yeah, <laughs> but, uh, you know, thankfully there's Linux that doesn't suck uh right. you know at least to for kids' use, and uh you know nowadays you know it's you know rather common to have more than one computer in a house so you can mess around with one
1: yes it's true now that they're doing things like uh with through what's one laptop per child a while back there was a big deal, but now right. it's the hundred dollar laptop and things like that they're doing a lot now for opportunities for kids if they had that interest now
0: yeah um let's say. You reminded me of something else I wanted to say, but, you know... Yeah, like, going from Java to basic, that's... (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm pretty sure someone has done that. Yeah, probably someplace. So, uh, anyways, uh, you wanted to discuss first impressions of Uh, Windows 8. Yes. I suppose something
1: changed on your end? On not on my personal computer, I still use Windows seven, but on my my family, they got a new laptop and it has windows eight on it so uh, briefly before they got it i 'd use Windows eight in someone else's machine and decided that the start menu was well since it's not there it's like
0: kinda uh, kinda promise. important
1: yeah hmm, exactly but I, I I got to play around with the laptop there on Sunday so on I sat on the couch and played with it and it was interesting um the the most the, the only good feature that I saw that I really liked was the task manager. The, they they did some really good things with that. The best tab, they have a startup tab in it. And it's like you can click and say, I want this program to start with Windows or I don't want it to start. And it's like easy to change. It got me thinking back to when I worked in college or in the tech service department. Students would bring in their laptops and be like, there's all this junk loading on it. And we'd go right. in there and do MS config and disable the ones that were... Starting up with it that were weren't useful for them, but I, I was impressed that they put that in and thought that was a really good feature because now normal people without too much trouble can disable things from startup.
0: Yeah, um, let's see, I believe uh, Scott Hanselman, uh, you know, sort of went over like some of the new features in Windows 8, and that was uh, like one of the big ones. Like, apparently, the file transfer dialog actually has, like, a rate graph, and you can pause transfers.
1: Oh, I gotta see this. That That's pretty nice. to pause the transfer. And eight. Uh, I did not do any file transfer. I'll have to try that. That's that's a good idea there. I wonder if they actually... Whoa, they do have a graph. That is Nice. So I wonder if they actually fixed the whole estimation problem that Windows has always had. I'm 13% done. Nope, oh, I'm 10% done. Oh, I'm 20% done.
0: <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, When if you're talking about, you know, okay, I know that this there's this many bytes to transfer, and I've done this many of them, it's pretty easy to say, oh, I'm 20% done or something.
1: See, I, I think the problem with file transfers is you notice that when you copy a lot of tiny files, it's like it takes more time to copy that tiny file than that giant gigabyte file. I mean, like, overall, like, if you a gigabyte of tiny files, a gigabyte of one file, it takes more time for all these tiny ones. I think that's what throws wonders off, because you see it getting those tiny ones it always kicks it back, and then it yeah. gets in the tiny ones. And,
0: yeah, like, yeah. uh it seems that uh, files smaller than 4K like, seem to, like, not really count, you know, the same. Yeah, e- even though
1: it's, like, it takes a lot of time to transfer those files, though, still, because it has all yeah. the, the I/O of I don't know what's involved there with the header and ending of the files. But there's got to be something there, yeah. Because
0: it yeah, takes cause, time, yeah, because you're uh, like making like actual nodes in the file system. Yes,
1: yeah, so you got to make your record and update it and everything. Yeah.
0: So, um, you know that that there's overhead with that. So, yeah. You know, you know, copying, you know, like, as you said, a gigabyte of really small files versus a gigabyte of, say, 30 meg or more files, you know, there's a big, uh, big gap with that. Yes. Raspberry? Raspberry? Raspberry! 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 Yes, after a few weeks of not having Raspberry, uh, we finally have Raspberry. So can you tell us about this?
1: Ooh, the Raspberry. So, it seems now that your Raspberry Pi can actually transmit to an FM radio, which is pretty fun. It says that... uh, you can transmit to a range of, I believe it's 100 meters. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, you can, supposedly, you can just give it like a file and an audio file, a wave file, and it'll transmit that. Yeah. I haven't tried it yet, but I'm thinking what I want to do is hook up a Morse code key that I have to one of the input pins and then have it play like a beep every time so I can like transmit Morse code short range. I think that could be kind of fun.
0: Yeah, um, see, I think that, uh, the other host, uh, Chris Thompson, he, he uh, wanted to make a Morse code thing. So, um, yeah, I have tried this, but, um, it seems that uh, either my pie is broken, or I'm just not doing it right, because you know, like, I ran the program and all I got was a buzzing noise. I stopped the program, but my radio was still rather quiet, so it It was transmitting some FM signal. It does have an effect on any radios next to it. (laughs) You know, tuned, obviously, to the right station or frequency. Um, But something doesn't quite work right. So, yeah. uh, Raspberry Pis keep on amazing people. Yes. And that's there's, there's like, you know, rather technical explanation about this, that, you know, like, there's some, like, clock generator at 500 megahertz and divide that by five, so that's your carrier signal for the FM signal. So, and, like, I remember actually looking at this, uh, like, a few months ago, you know, like, uh, the difference between AM and FM transmission. So, um, like, for instance, do you know what an, what a oscilloscope is? and what it looks like. I've seen an
1: oscilloscope at college. Some of the computer engineers had one and it would have the, you know, like that wave on it and they'd measure it. He was using for microprocessors, I didn't really understand why he, he needed it for that, but he was using it.
0: Yeah. And pretty much, you know, any, uh, any software, you know, MP3 player on a computer can, uh, you know, have a oscilloscope visualization, but, uh, You know, for AM, that's essentially the intensity of the signal on one frequency. Um, Versus on FM, you know, if you pretend like the bottom of that, you know, scope is one frequency and the top is another, that wave, you know, the change in frequency is the wave that you see. So you know instead of you know varying the intensity of the signal like am you're changing the frequency okay so the wave itself versus how strong the signal is yeah kind of. so uh like if the uh signal is at one low frequency that's the low part of the you know the oscilloscope
1: okay. thing
0: and uh when it's at the high point on the oscilloscope that's a higher frequency being transmitted so, you know, FM requires a little bit more bandwidth, you know, and as far as frequency goes, but it's a lot more impervious to disruption and noise. So
1: the the AMs do have the the transmission. I remember hearing once that KDK, I guess, goes higher power at night, and they can hear him like halfway across the country. That that kind of amazed me. That yeah. it's like they can transmit that far.
0: Yeah, it's that's uh, you know. The uh, reflection off the ionosphere, in you know, like, 50 miles off the surface of the ground. So, and, like, I've heard that back in the day, that, you know, when there were more AM stations, that uh, they, you know, had to turn them off at night. Otherwise, they'd start to interfere with stations, like, thousands of miles away.
1: Oh, because they're bouncing and they go hit someone else. <laughs>
0: yeah. So, yeah. Interesting thing, uh, radio engineering. Mm-hmm. so and now for this week's lol mcafee <laughs> so uh do you, do you recall um john mcafee of uh the antivirus fame
1: i remember reading about him a while back there's something about he killed someone or something they think and he was hiding from people that's what i remember yeah. reading about him
0: yeah so apparently like he was uh a suspect in the death of his neighbor in like Guatemala or something. So he, uh, uh, beat it and got out of there. And, uh, let's see, but he hasn't really been involved in antivirus for like several years because he, uh, sold his company and essentially cashed out, which I mean, you know, if I had a multimillion dollar company, that would seem like a, a good thing. Idea to do at some point. So, you know, get out while the going's good, I guess. That's right. But, um, let's see, apparently, uh, Indie Media Ireland, uh, ran a story that, uh, mistakenly claimed that he was dead. So apparently his death has been great, greatly exaggerated. Uh, claims that, uh, he died, uh, like some, uh, hotel in the Las Vegas Strip.
1: It's like people didn't know, so they made up a story that fit it.
0: (laughs) Yeah, and, you know, considering this guy, he's sort of like a stoner. Uh, You know, it sort of makes sense that that's, you know, how he would go. So out of grief, he tweeted about it and said, I felt fine when I went to bed last night. I had such (laughs) great plans. R.I.P. John McAfee. That's pretty good.
1: I I was just looking at some of the the comments. They're, these guys are like, oh, of course you felt fine, yeah. Ha.
0: So, um, in the time since, uh, for those wondering if I'm dead, the answer is the media is killing me, but somehow I'm still tweeting. Uh, are we one hundred percent sure? Is John McAfee dead? No, no, he was not. CNBC
1: watch him have like a script set up or something yeah. so that's after he really dies he still like keeps tweeting <laughs> like for years later to just keep tweeting morning check
0: pulse check heartbeat <laughs> check boner <That's> right. check <laughs> so anyways um uh, i guess uh like the wireless industry is like a really big thing
1: yes there's a company called I think that's how you pronounce it. They're gonna bring Seems out like this this uh wireless device and this this one's different. This is a charger, so, so they're saying that it's gonna cost about a hundred dollars when they bring it to market and they said that it's about the size the device is gonna be about the size of a PC tower, the transmitter. And they says it says it would have like a thirty foot range and it's on the same spectrum as like Wi Fi, so like your microwave or your cordless phone, like that same wireless spectrum. Hmm. Uh, so you, you can see how that would be used. You can have like, your iPhone and it would plug you might have a device you plug in into or something a box. Mm-hmm. I, I saw on the their website they had like a box they showed it. it's about the size of uh I don't know. Maybe a, I'm trying to think of something square that size. Not quite bigger than a starburst, but not not too much bigger than that. Like if you think of a starburst as a square uh, enough of them stacked together. Anyways, so you can have your iPhone sitting there on your desk charging and it would just start charging when you came home. The interesting thing about it is they're saying that they hope to miniaturize it eventually and make it like the size so that it could fit inside of a AAA battery. So you can imagine at that point in time, you could get all these conversions of any device, a normal device uh-huh. that doesn't su- support the wireless charging that takes like a D- AAA battery. So then you put it in this... Wireless battery thing, and you just have instant power on that device forever, which I thought was pretty interesting.
0: Yeah, although if it transmits over the same spectrum as like Wi Fi and like everything else, um, like whenever you turn it on, nothing else would work.
1: See, I'm not sure about that because your microwave's technically the same, I think, and your cordless phone. Yeah, it can be. So I'm not I'm not sure how that works. If it hurt your your Wi-Fi signal, maybe cause it caused, you know caused interference. cause interference because they're pretty good at picking up if something like the signal's not quite right. They resend the packets and stuff. So I don't know if they, as long as they weren't like sitting on top of your router, if maybe you'd be okay.
0: So and you know I've heard stories of you know people's Wi-Fi going down because the microwaves on exactly. <laughs> um and then there was uh, a rather unfortunate. Uh, Incident—I wouldn't say incident—because it happened over several months. That uh, I remember, you know, back when I was, you know, growing up, that uh, one microwave we had, uh, like, whenever you would turn it on, it would destroy Channel Ten on the TV. <laughs> you couldn't watch it, and like, Channel Ten was the best, si- you know, station we got, you yeah, know, like, d- signal quality-wise. Just wise. that channel, though. Yeah. And, like, it would, you know, suddenly go from the best, you know, station we could get to, like, absolute static and noise and horrible. (laughs) That's funny. I've
1: never seen the microwave effect TV. Like, I've seen the, uh, like, the mixer or something like that or wipe out the TV. I've seen that, but never a microwave. That's funny. Hmm.
0: So, I'm not sure if it was actually, like, the microwaves themselves or some other mechanism inside. So... I guess we can do a lol Apple. (laughs) Apparently they released another iPhone uh, and their stock goes down. Everyone goes nuts. Uh, Nothing to see here. Move along. (laughs) Um, So the question these days, uh, you know, as far as like uh, talented employees, uh, is there a shortage of, you know, STEM grads? Uh, science, uh, technology, engineering, and math uh, type uh, degrees and, you know, people who have them. Um, so, you know, is there a shortage or is there not a shortage? Uh, judging by the lack of salary inflation, there apparently is not. Because, like, if there was a shortage of, you know, uh, programmers, uh, programmer salaries would, you know, be going up and up and yes. up like all the time. Um which I suppose in a few places it is, but that's not universal across all STEM fields.
1: You kind of get that impression because I've heard, I haven't been experience it, but I heard back before the dot-com bubble that it's like you just could write HTML and like you had a job. It's like you didn't take too much yeah. skills and now it's it's competitive. You have to actually know something and be decent at what you do to get a job and be able to maintain it. Of course,
0: you know, after the uh, you know the dot com bubble popped, you know everyone that was there, you know, for the gold rush effect, you know, everyone that was there just for the money, who didn't really mm-hmm. care about the you know the hard problems of computer science, you know, after the dot com bubble popped, all of those people went away. So it yes. sort of purified. uh That is true. A little bit.
1: And that makes a a big difference, I think, on technology jobs because. I think anyone, if they put the time to it, could learn to code. But there's definitely is a certain personality that likes the coding. It's fun, and it, it, that's what right. makes a good developer.
0: So, uh, Have you ever heard of NGINX? No. Okay, well, apparently it's a uh, web server, and uh, it's like the third most popular. And uh, Wired uh, interviewed the guy behind it uh he's a russian guy and uh you know uh first you know starts out with the fact that uh you know automatic which is apparently the uh people behind wordpress uh switched over to using nginx um, so uh the, this guy uh apparently you know started building this for his company and uh let's see uh apparently it was uh, rambler which is uh, looks like it's you know some sort of Russian web portal, uh, so like he you know built this you know web server for them, and at some point he open sourced it, and uh, you know that's what made it really good. So and as far as I know, it's like really fast. It doesn't have as many features as Apache, uh, which you know. It seems like the less you have, the faster you go. It's a sp-
1: yeah. Sometimes that's the case. And you it's, Make it simple. It's yeah.
0: it's a sort of space time trade off. So, um, yeah, I found this a little bit interesting here. So,
1: it's in- and- I was gonna say it's interesting that if if he wrote it for a company, that then the company will let them release it and put it out for open source.
0: So yeah and if it was not open source it would not be popular. That's uh, true too. <laughs> I guess that's the only way for anyone to trust Russian software. So is. you can actually read
1: what it does and just make
0: sure there's nothing in there. <laughs> yeah. Uh you know for it's you know also the third most popular web server after Apache and uh, IIS according to Netcraft who does massive research on this kind of stuff. Uh, because they measure uptime of pretty much everyone on the web, uh, except my web server, apparently <laughs> so uh, netcraft uh you know releases a report every month, you know stating you know it's like okay, this is like the general overall view of the web you know when compared to you know like web servers and host names and stuff
1: so. So so don't feel too bad. My my hunting blog site isn't listed by them either, so.
0: (laughs) Yeah. So, yeah, it seems like uh, the web server I use, you know, here is uh, rather minority. I believe it would be classified under sun or maybe other since it's glassfish. So, uh, let's see. You know what PHP my admin is?
1: Yes, I used to use that yes. back when I was learning databases and stuff at home and having fun.
0: So it essentially turns, like, database administration into a web app. Uh, let see, it's uh, apparently the bane of hacked servers, but uh, at any rate, it is now 15 years old.
1: That's quite old for software to still be around, people using it.
0: Yep, that's what open source kind of does, so it, you know, keeps things relevant. Mm -hmm. So, And I say uh, hacked servers because my server has been scanned for every version of this bloody piece of crap too many times. Um, Even though uh, my server does not run MySQL, nor does it have PHP on it, which is what this thing runs on, uh, it gave me experience in building a hell-banning system. (laughs) So... Uh, like i said maybe you don't use mysql and maybe you have postgres sql instead uh, because version 9.3 has recently been released
1: materialized views and foreign tables that's interesting
0: yes some of the new features um, so yeah you know postgres keeps on getting better and better and especially because uh, oracle has kind of taken uh, mysql and sort of you know neglected it that, uh, you know, it's you know, a viable alternative and it has been getting better and better you know, even before uh, my sequel sort of started circling the drain.
1: I've never used Postgres before. Have you used it any?
0: Uh, yeah, it's what runs my blog. Oh, okay. So, and uh, me and Chris have, uh, you know, sort of used it back uh, in college. Oh, nice. So, and, uh, uh, let's see, at least back then it was apparently the a uh, database system that supported most of the SQL standard, at least adhered to it the best out of all the others.
1: And that is one thing with databases, the systems. It's like you, you search the internet for how to do something in SQL, and it's like, that doesn't work for you. You have to put in the that your type for your like, yeah, like Oracle. Transact, I use Oracle. I always, yeah.
0: Or like transact SQL for SQL Server. Uh, I think it's like PL SQL for Oracle, PG SQL for for Postgres, and Mm. whatever dialect MySQL uses.
1: So offhand, do you know what these foreign tables, how they work? I I was really curious about those.
0: Yeah, so uh, foreign tables, uh, you can think of them as like a foreign data source somewhere that it may not be you know, a database table. It might not be even a database at all. It might be like a Twitter stream or something. Wow. That, you know, that, you know, this information could be mapped into a sort of table structure.
1: So... When, unless you do a lot with that, you can push yeah. all kinds of data into that. Wow. So,
0: or it could be like an XML schema or something. So, you know, you can read, uh, you can query... You know, just like any other kind of table, um, and apparently now you can write to those if the wrapper uh, uh, supporting it.
1: So I wonder how the 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 plugin code works behind it. Is there? I I, I There must be the wrapper. Like you know, what language? Like how is that ri- written?
0: Um, pr- I think that it's written in pretty much any uh, language that Postgres supports. Uh, you know. Uh, I believe it supports uh, Python, it supports uh, JavaScript, and, you know, plenty of others. Hmm. So, yeah.
1: That's, that's a pretty good feature. I like that.
0: So, yeah. So, uh, after you've installed your Postgres 9.3, you might have to set up some users for it. You know, just pretty much any uh, database administrator job. So here's a cheat sheet of sorts on how to do that. So this uh, uses the uh, pSQL client, the command line client on Linux to do this. You know, sort of goes over, you know, how do you list databases, how do you list tables and roles, and creating users and creating roles. You know, just very basic stuff to get going.
1: That's a pretty good Rundown of the basics, for sure.
0: Um, So, anyways, uh, now your Postgres databases can be even bigger, uh, because Seagate has announced shingled magnetic recording to push hard drive capacities to new heights. Uh, Apparently they expect uh, 20 terabyte hard drives by the year 2020, and uh, contrary to popular opinion, hard drives are not going away anytime soon.
1: That's, that's the thing with hard drives is everyone's going for the, the solid-state drives now, but really, when it comes down to it, the hard drives can hold massively more than the, the solid-state drives for cheaper. so yeah, I agree with that. they aren't going away. They're going to change how things work, but not yeah. going away.
0: Yeah, And like especially if you're on a budget, you know, a hard drive will still do, and, definitely you know, even from like five years ago, they are faster now. Than they were, so I,
1: I could see it being a thing like the tape drives kind of like phasing off in time, perhaps maybe eventually. Kind of like as I know, some companies at least four or five years ago still used the tape backup systems. Mm-hmm. Or for a school district, and they had you know they had fancy servers and everything, but still they had this tape backup system that someone would set up and back up their data once in a while. And it's just it is a way to store data, and it was a good way to store massive amounts of data.
0: So um, this is a s- improvement, I'm not sure if it's an improvement or a departure upon the uh, previous uh, technology, well, the current technology, excuse me, used in hard drives called perpendicular recording, uh, where instead of, like, the magnetic domains on the hard drive being, like, flat up against the surface of the drive... It's you know sort of at you know stacked upwards you know sort of like a book on a shelf you yes. know standing upright rather than like a pile of books. Um, yeah, I,
1: I think I read about this once about four or five years back in PC Magazine, and I was all excited about it, but it was like it's still proof of concept then. They were just talking about it.
0: Yeah, and I remember uh, like getting my Ferrari laptop, um, like a hundred and sixty gigabyte drive. It was one of the very first perpendicular magnetic recording drives uh, which I still use in my uh, Newmont laptop um, because the hard drive that came in there was only a hundred gigs so and the Ferrari died unfortunately um, so this shingled magnetic recording essentially spaces and sort of overlaps the uh, data tracks so you know instead of having like spaces in between the tracks on the disk they sort of overlap a little bit so, which, you know, the downside is if you need to change something, you need to, like, write over a few tracks at the same time in order to, like, make it all, you know, work.
1: That's just like you, you, you write over the spot you need and then rewrite the data around it, like. Yeah. So that, that's good for big files. So if you're using it for backups or something, you, you're just writing out massive amounts. So it's not going to have to do all this extra work. So yeah. it would work good in a system with, like, a solid state drive. For faster common read and writing and then you could have your your big drive for for storing a lot of information
0: yep so um, Intel uh, moving in a different direction has decided to not support Mir uh, this is Ubuntu's new display server or display manager or something like that it's supposed to uh, replace X Uh you familiar with the X dot you know x.org server at all.
1: Yes, I, I, I remember I used it some back... Uh...
0: It's pretty much the default, actually.
1: Yes. I, 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 I was trying to think when I, I actually ran into it. Because normally you don't see that, because you know, it just comes up in this magic, it's magic as Ubuntu. I'm yeah. back when I played with Puppy Linux, I believe. Was when it take you one of the modes it would take you to it, a command prompt, and you had to type in, I think it was Xorg or something, you had to type in. Yeah. Or was Xstart, something that yeah, you had to start and that's, that's what it was, you're your kickstarting the, the, the Xorg to make it go.
0: Yeah. So that's, you know, essentially like one of the fundamental components that you need to have a GUI yes. as opposed to, you know, text mode. Um. So, uh, anyway, there's been, you know, uh, I wouldn't say realizations, but this was realized like a long time ago that X.org is essentially a uh, obsolete architecture. You know, it uses like all these designs from the '80s and stuff. When you know, n- you know, graphic display power wasn't exactly that great, yeah. and uh, you know, essentially, like you were using a dumb terminal, if you will. So, uh, you know, there's been a lot of you know talk about you know replacing this and you know some you know some proposals and things have come up uh one being wayland uh which is apparently what intel is supporting uh and mir which is what ubuntu is doing so intel has decided to you know focus on only one thing the more popular option huh. uh so this means that ubuntu will have to do driver support on their own uh I'm not sure if just for Intel GPUs or every GPU.
1: That could definitely be a pretty big hit to Ubuntu if they don't have so, a solution quickly. Yeah. So um. I I wonder if if Ubuntu might move to the other one. I I have no idea what what that would. I I haven't read about the other one. Was it Wayland? Is that what yeah. you said it was? I I, I don't know how that compares to the mirror or anything. Um. That would seem easier.
0: Apparently. Uh, Ubuntu's rationale uh, about going with mirror is, uh, uh, you know, mobile devices. Ah, I'll uh, uh, say, have you ever heard of the Ubuntu, f- you know, going onto phones?
1: I have heard about that. My youngest brother is crazy about laptops and mobile devices, and he has a, a netbook, and he's been trying to get Ubuntu to work with it.
0: So, um, yeah, apparently. Like, they had some problems getting Wayland to work on cell phones and stuff. Or it wasn't exactly well designed for cell phones. So, they decided to, you know, do this mirror thing instead. So, I'm not exactly sure how much of a problem this will be for them. Um, because apparently it was just, like, a wrapper support for, uh, the Intel driver. So, I'm not sure how how much of a headache this will be. At least, uh, Intel is, uh, uh is rather good about open-sourcing their drivers. So, uh, unlike uh, AMD and NVIDIA.
1: Yes. So I've, I've downloaded the NVIDIA driver from the website and stuff, and it's always really painful trying to find the right one and making it work.
0: Yeah, and uh, like I especially remember the ATI driver uh, back like five years ago. I wanted to install it on my new laptop. So... Like I'm, you know, going through. I'm following the instructions, and you know, it's like okay, you know, like do everything right and reboot, and then uh, like do some like GLX info, I think. But uh-huh. it was still on the software renderer and not the hardware. That's
1: just terribly slow, right then.
0: <laughs> and like I did this like five times, and still, it would just not work.
1: Mm-hmm. So,
0: ah, uh, anyways, pain.
1: Linux and drivers can be quite interesting.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Um, And then, especially culminating in the one point where uh, uh, Linus Torvalds uh, flipped off NVIDIA. So, see, that was maybe three months ago or so?
1: I didn't hear about that one.
0: Yeah, it was earlier this year. Uh, I'll, I'll get a link for you later. Okay. So... Uh, here's a checklist and or form where you can mock anyone's ideas for a distributed social network. Uh, you know, pointing out flaws and saying that it won't work for reasons. Um, some of the reasons, uh, uh, see, your post describes a uh, protocol or GitHub repo or manifesto or a Kickstarter for a distributed social network. Your idea will not work. Here's why. One or more of the following flaws may apply to your particular idea. And these are all checkboxes. You think, if you build it, they will come. Uh, All of the other social networks with more users, developers, time, and money. Uh, Users want to own their data is an ideology and not a use case. Uh, Public keys are not a magic wand to make security issues disappear. Uh, Social problems dominate the technical ones. And people use email for that. Um, let's see. Uh, And then skipping down to the bottom. uh, Furthermore, this is what I think about you. Uh, Sorry, I don't think it would work. Uh, I will enjoy watching your dreams fall into obscurity and regret I have popcorn. (laughs) Or this is a stupid idea. Therefore, I'm going to make fun of you on a centralized social network. (laughs) Pretty good. So... Anyway, so while you're building your social network or website or whatever, uh, don't force me to sign up initially. So, you know, with the plethora of services and websites and, like, new ideas coming around, like, everyone wants you to sign up first before you oh, yeah. try out anything.
1: That's how they always want. They want to get that email address so they can send you stuff. And- yeah. Yeah.
0: So 99 percent of sites/apps/services slash slash we visit now make you go and register and through an onboarding process before getting to the meat of the product: account information, profile information, credit card and credit card, uh, profile photo, confirming emails, inviting friends, connecting social networks, tours, following people. Uh, All of these screens, clicks, pixels, and inputs added up to a bloated first-time experience, which in turn affects conversions, usage, and how people feel about your product. Sign up sucks, so why do we keep forcing users to do it? Imagine if you walked up to a clothing store that you had never been in before, and you were only able to see the outside. In the window, instead of clothes, they have icons with brief descriptions of the clothes. Then, if you want to enter to look at them or try them on, the shop asks you for personal details, a photo of yourself, where you live. Then asks you for a five of your friends' email, so you can, so they can invite them to the shop uh, that you still have not entered and don't know if it's any good yet. Uh, You eventually get it in and realize that it's not what you wanted. Afterwards, you start receiving letters from your friends in the mail. Uh, or see, letters from the store in the mail every day until you ask them to stop. Same thing, right? Kind of.
1: (laughs) I always like, I I was thinking about the whole sign-in and sign-up stuff. I I was thinking about uh, in the C-Panel I've used before. I think it's Softlicious is what it is. And it has, they would have links to like a demo of the website. Of most of the free software that you could install. And it was it was always so nice. It was like you just do the demo and like try something out and it's like you could hit four or five different ones all at once and be like, oh this is great, this one is isn't what I want at all. But yes, the the idea of not having to sign up definitely makes trying things out better.
0: Yeah, and you know, I definitely agree with uh like especially going around to uh page speed websites that, you know, the good ones will allow you to do it, you know, it's like, hey, I want to want you to rank my uh, my blog and see how fast it is. And, like, sometimes they rope off certain features, and that's totally fine. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, the main functionality is there and exposed.
1: Yeah, they can just kind of show you how it works, and, yep.
0: So, I can
1: use, like, the ones for the spell checkers and stuff they run it in. And they normally want an email address is the thing. It's like I don't like giving them the email address, but sometimes you can find good ones like that that actually show you it without... ...needing to email me, which you don't need to.
0: hmm So, uh, you don't really use Steam that much, do you?
1: I use Steam for TF2 sometimes. I have Portal installed, but not recently.
0: So, uh, uh for the rest of us, uh, Steam Family Sharing has been announced. So you won't have to buy so many copies of a game for your family and close friends.
1: That's an interesting idea.
0: So, you know, uh, people have gigantic Steam libraries. I'm not sure how many I have. I just went past the Humble Indie Bundle today and picked up, like, another five or so. Um, (laughs) So now you can share your, you know, thousands of games on your Steam account with other people. And without, like, having to log in on their machine and, you know, like, all the ugliness that accounts for that. Uh, So apparently this is now in limited beta, available soon.
1: It's interesting that companies would agree to that, because that's like, if you can share your game with someone, then it's like, they're not going to buy their own copy of the game.
0: Uh, Let's see it. Uh, Like, one of the questions under here, can all Steam games be shared with friends and family? Uh, No, due to technical limitations, some Steam games may be unavailable. For example, titles that require additional third-party key, account, or subscription in order to play cannot be shared.
1: Well, that makes sense.
0: So, uh, can a friend and I share a library and both play at the same time? Uh, no. Which is usually fine, because if you have an older game laying around, you can you know go ahead and lend it out or something. So,
1: I, I, I'm seeing what they're doing here then. So, it's almost like like I have a game and I have to put the CD in to play the game so it's like I have a buddy and I want to bone him the games I I, I give him the CD physically Mm -hmm. and he goes and plays the game so that that does make sense then since it's one at a time yeah it's a good idea
0: yeah um let's see what else so yeah this is this sort of sounds sort of the same about how Xbox One was going to do their sort of DRM thing but uh, people rightfully got angry about that. So
1: So we, they got angry about the fact that they could only play one at a time or
0: Um I think they mostly got angry over the fact that they had to have a internet connection that was available once a day. Ah, uh,
1: because it's they have to know where not the other guy's playing it and stuff.
0: Yeah. So like I'm they never really mentioned that uh, uh, like if you bought a game it would i I think they Actually, now that I think about it, I think they said that, you know, if you go to the store and buy a disc of a game, brought it home, that then it would be tied to your account. And, like, it would sort of be locked down to just your account, even okay. though you had the disc, it could go into, like, somewhere else.
1: Oh, so you can take it over to your friend's house and play it? it was, But it would have to be,
0: be on your account.
1: Ah, yeah. Or something. So, so that would mean you couldn't resell it then, probably, unless there's a way to unlink it with your account.
0: Um, they had a whole entirely complicated system around that, so, um, yeah, and, you know, people who have consoles, like, they're embedded devices and they're a little bit more mobile than, you know, PCs are, um, like, for instance, I think there was, like, uh, like a mentioning of this guy who lived on a nuclear submarine, uh, with his Xbox 360, and, you know... Uh, you know, some days that, you know, it gets kind of boring when you're on a submarine out in the middle of the ocean. <laughs> it uh, would. Uh, but out in the middle of the ocean, you don't have an internet connection. And you won't have it for maybe months at a time.
1: Yes, I can see that being a really big problem there. <laughs>
0: uh, and then, and then you know, people out in the boonies, you know, having DSL, you know, if it rains, your connection might be out for a week.
1: Mm-hmm, Definitely even you might have dial-up or something if you're way out there, and then you'd be... I I don't know if you'd even have enough bandwidth to do something like that. Yeah. It'd be painful if you did.
0: So... uh, And uh, after not mentioning the NSA for a couple of podcasts, I guess we uh, have to start talking about them for a little bit. So Yahoo sues the government uh, because they want to publish how many times the government, uh, that is the NSA specifically... Uh, came to them demanding bulk information on their users. Uh, so Yahoo filed suit in the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, uh, which is like the court specifically for the NSA to come and make their case that we need to spy on people. So it's rather, it seems to me this is rather odd in that a company, you know, like some other third party non government entity would, you know, file suit here
1: it seems to make sense though because the public opinion is so negative against nsa now especially like have you seen the prank videos that that guy does with i think there's two of them at least where the guy calls up the nsa and then it's like he's like some iranian guy and he gives them the name and never and asks if they're spying on him and stuff have you seen those
0: no i haven't
1: okay uh but anyways it's, it's such a big thing now that it would it seems like good publicity for yahoo it's like being the good guy, by suing the governments that can, we want to show how bad they really are. And so that makes, even if they don't win this, it's good publicity for them, because it's like we're the good guy here, we're trying to we're on your side. opposed to like Google where they just came out and said like, you have no expectation of privacy and all that. So it's like, yeah, who's yeah, playing the good guy now?
0: Uh-huh. So, yeah, it'll be interesting to see how this works. So ah, uh, it seems like the cryptocalypse has happened and that the NSA has effectively subverted encryption. And this suddenly, you know, sort of worked around. Uh, quote, the design changes make the systems in question uh, exploitable through int collection uh, with foreknowledge of the modification. Uh, to the consumer and other adversaries, however, the system's security remains intact. So, like, from the outside, you know, it looks like everything's okay. So, you know, it does this through, you know, like, either brute force of, you know, trying to guess the encryption key um, or through, like, actual confiscation of the encryption keys, you know, uh, at the company or whatever.
1: It's saying that the link there I was reading, you're saying, too, that it works with Kind of covertly with tech companies to insert weaknesses in their products so it sounds like it's, it's back doors as well yeah. that they're trying to stuff in is that something I remember talking about this back in college with someone they were saying about how uh, in some countries it can be illegal to write your own encryption software because the government then can't have a back door into it Yeah, since if you're writing your own thing
0: yeah this is uh, you know like, back in the 90s, even, that, uh, like, encryption software that used a, I think it was like a 56-bit key or greater, like, you could not export that because it was considered munitions.
1: <laughs> really?
0: Yeah. Wow. So, um, like, have you heard of PGP?
1: PGP. No. What is it?
0: Um, It's used mostly to encrypt emails. Privacy. Yeah. So... Uh, like this guy, he you know wrote this up, and like instead of just you know like putting the code on a server somewhere, he actually put it put the source code in a book. In so, a book, yeah. So you know, in theory, you know, he could sell the book which had the source code. You uh-huh. could just you know scan it in, OCR <laughs> it, and then compile the code from the OCR from the book. That
1: That's really good, that's very creative so so that got around the export rule then by by yes, selling the be, book
0: by selling the book, it was essentially freedom of speech, wow, or freedom of press, whatever, and they couldn't and trying to go after them for munitions, it's a book
1: yeah, exactly <laughs> it's a book freedom of speech so I wonder if that's an interesting concept. I never really thought about that before. is code today considered? F- Free speech expression. Can I post, you know, any code I want as free speech? Is that is that free speech? That's an interesting thought.
0: Um, I think that it probably would be. Um, but if you're posting, say, your company's code, and, now that's a problem. There, that that's yeah. different. That's not mine to post. I can't. I can't yeah. post a book for. Free. Yeah, you'd yeah. probably be violating like NDAs up and down. But. Yeah. To the government, sure, it would be freedom of speech, but you'd be violating contract law. Yes, and, so. and
1: there is that, that distinction. There is, like, you can't... That, that's normal. You can't give people videos that you have for free. That's piracy to that copy them. Yeah. So there, is, there is that distinction, yes.
0: But, see, I'm not sure if anyone's been sued over copyright infringement for posting code. I'm pretty sure that there might have been something like that, but uh I can't recall any examples. So uh this article mentioned uh like weakening uh you know standards and systems and stuff. So due to suspicious NSA involvement uh with a algorithm called the dual EC DBRG, it's a random number generator standard, uh the uh, NIST, which is like the National Institutes for Standard or something, is, uh, asking for comments and suggestions for edits to 800-90, uh, calling this new standard 800-90A. Uh, 800-90, uh, came out, I think it was in the 90s. It specified four random number generators, and, the uh, this uh, dual EC whatever is based off of elliptic curve cryptography. It actually stands for Dual Elliptic Curve Deterministic Random Bit Generator. Uh, the you know elliptic curves are supposedly the most advanced form of cryptography. And implementations of 800-90 uh, often do not include this dual EC thing. So... Uh, like they're trying to, you know, figure out what exactly uh, was suggested that made this weak. Um, you know, people connected to the NSA and like even in the NSA itself, you know, uh, you know actually made suggestions and they were included in this standard. So this is like very concerning to everyone. You're
1: thinking they made suggestions that made it weaker and yes. more predictable of the random numbers. Yes. So I was trying to think about it because I mean prime numbers are incredibly important in encryption. I was trying to—I th- mean, yeah, numbers themselves are useful too. <laughs> I, I was—I I was just trying to think how much most most algorithms depend upon the prime numbers. I was trying to decide how how much really just a pure random number generator how useful that is. I guess it does have value. You could pick your prime number if you had a set of prime well, numbers or something. You could pick your prime number randomly. I guess.
0: Well, uh, let's see. Like, when you do an encryption, it's, like, usually based on a bit field, like some rectangular space of, like, 128 bits or whatever. Yes. And then you do a whole bunch of ZORs, like exclusive ORs, on mm-hmm. this. Um, so That's true for
1: an exclusive OR encryption. Random numbers would be important. Yes. So,
0: like, if you start with, you know, this random number and then you start, you know, exclusive oring stuff on top of it. You know, that's sort of like where they come in handy.
1: Yes, that, that's true. I forgot about the exclusive or.
0: Yeah, uh, I, think it's, yes. I think it's like the initialization vector or something. So and then, you know, you I'm, I'd am i imagine that uh, like random numbers would also be involved with keys quite a bit, too. But then again, I'm not exactly a cryptographer. So, what do I know?
1: Yeah, I I think with the exclusive or... It it does make a lot of sense there because the exclusive or is a perfect encryption if your key is perfect. Because there is no way to undo an exclusive or... Without... anything. Without the key. Yeah. Yes.
0: So, uh, like, uh, you've heard of AES? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is a whole bunch of exclusive ors. So, and I think this, it might have been last podcast, I found a article where it was just like a cartoon character sort of explaining how AES is done.
1: Doesn't that use lookup tables, though, don't they?
0: Um, I think you can implement it, uh, at least part of it that way. Um, I know apparently DES uses a whole bunch of lookup tables.
1: Yes, DES uses a lot of them. So... Uh, I was looking quickly at Wikipedia. It looks like they're shifting some bits and some columns. I, I think I actually did AES, like a manual uh, calculation in college once, and it's kind of coming back. I I, th- I think you're right. It is mainly just shifting your bits around and stuff, and it, it shows at the end after the shifts they're XORing with your key. I think I think that's what it was. You have a shorter key, then you do all this fancy shifting, but then you do XOR it with the key throughout the process. Yeah. I think that's how it was, yeah. So. your substitution boxes, this bit would we'll go to that bit. That was that was confusing. <laughs> it was fun though.
0: have some feedback on this podcast. Uh, yes. So uh, Ryan chimes in. Uh, he says that in the Guild Wars 2 forum, and sometimes in the game, if someone swears at you and you have the filter on, it changes the swear word to the word kitten. So, for example, the kitten dragon just kittened me. <laughs> so... And, uh, speaking of that, uh, cryptography thing, uh, he says that, I'm horrible at math. Hold on while I cry. And let me cry with you. (laughs) So, uh, Ryan says, I think I'll be waiting for a while still. Uh, that is for DDR4. Uh, I'm not feeling crunched for memory or memory speed. I guess an SSD and advancements in that would be- would make me help happier. So... And, That's uh,
1: true. We have way too much RAM nowadays. Yeah. For now, for now.
0: Um, and SSDs, you know, like if you're always loading stuff, you know, they will help you. But oh, yes. like even loading times in games, I haven't really noticed that much of a difference because it's not just you know reading data off the disk; it's also processing it, exactly. decompressing it, and loading it into graphics memory too.
1: What I saw with SSD, like my experience is. Booting like I, I set mine up to boot Ubuntu and I saw it, it boots Ubuntu fast. It, yeah. it did, does do that well. It seems to be good at loading that massive dump of the operating system, just dumping it into the RAM. It seems to be good at doing that anyways.
0: Yeah. And um like you know on Windows seven how the uh like the Windows logo sort of swirls together. Yeah. Before it even you know, ends swirling together, it's still swirling. It's already loaded. <laughs> So um uh, Ryan says I think Mac Mini Colo did an April Fools joke where they would allow customers to migrate to iPad Mini Colo to reduce their fees. So that was uh, me suggesting that you know you know a horrible thought would be someone somewhere wants to run their web server off of an iPad. Ah. <laughs> there, there's got to be okay. some idiot somewhere that wants to do that.
1: I could I could see someone doing that. I mean, I, I guess if it was a small website, and you since you probably keep your tablet on all the time and you just charge it a lot, I guess you could do that if you're always connected to the Internet. But, yeah, that's pretty good. It's like a Raspberry Pi web server, I guess. Lightweight.
0: Except it would <laughs> run always over Wi-Fi and have a uh, rather limited storage. Uh, yes,
1: it it would be.
0: Um so I had mentioned a uh like a color generator of some sort on the last podcast. And Ryan says I used this while picking some colors occasionally It links to zero to two fifty five dot com.
1: Ah that's a nice one. I used once th- I forget the name of it. I'll have to look it up it has, like a wheel, it would, you'd spin it and you could like spin the wheel and match it up with different colors. This one is interesting. The 02255, that's easy to remember because it's obvious. Yeah. It's a nice, nice domain name.
0: So, and uh, let's see, I know I used Color Lovers. They had a uh, color tool on there that I used for my blog. So. And uh, while not necessarily uh, feedback for this podcast, uh, Buckface asked uh, if I worked at Lightside Labs, which is apparently a company here in Pittsburgh. Uh, no, I work at We Do Commerce. So, um, did you want to share where you work at?
1: Uh, I work for a company called Crehan. We make uh, specialized software for pharmacies. Uh, so. We deal with clients like Walgreens and CVS is one that's kind of coming on. So it's, it's an interesting, interesting job.
0: Cool. So if you want to submit feedback for this podcast, don't forget to use the link on the nexus.tv. Uh, now without the dash. So um, Ryan just released a, uh, a new CMS, which you know looks a little bit different, but generally the same as the other one. So... Um, don't forget that today is International Backup Awareness Day, so back up your stuff every day. (laughs) So, uh, um, because even Mr. Linus Torvalds had his kitten SSDs fail on him yesterday, so that, uh, if you had an outstanding pull request for the Linux kernel, you might want to resend that email. I'm not sure why I'm saying this, because we don't have any listeners who would do such a thing.
1: Yes, it probably would be listening.
0: <laughs> so, and uh, I guess I haven't said hi, mom, to mom yet. So hi. So, uh, where can you, where can we find you on the internet? Oh, I do have a technical
1: blog that I recently started. It's proveitwithaunittest.wordpress.com. Haven't gotten a real domain name yet. Eventually, I will someday. Prove but it it's, with
0: a unit test. Yes.
1: Hmm. So if you type in prove it with a unit test with as one word into Google, it actually comes up. <laughs> but I, I have two posts. I, I'll probably eventually post more as I feel like it. But anyways, it's, it's something fun. What do you know? You're the only one who uh, shows up. <laughs> but if you type it in without with spaces, it's not quite as good. But for now, it's a start.
0: All right. So, um, I think we've had uh, fun on this podcast.
1: Yes. Thanks for having me. It's been good.
0: Yeah, you're welcome. So, uh, you can come back anytime. Okay. So, um, I guess that's it, and I should be seeing you tomorrow, probably.
1: Yes. We'll see you.
0: All right. So, uh, have a good one.
1: You too.